Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As I've mentioned a few times now, the structure of 2 Corinthians is fairly straightforward. There are three main divisions. In chapters 1 to 7, Paul explains his recent conduct and offers a brief defense of his ministry. In chapters 8 to 9, he calls on them to re-engage with the Jerusalem offering. And then in chapters 10 to 13, he vigorously defends his exercise of apostolic authority among them. Now, to the casual Bible reader, these two chapters here in the middle often seem like a sort of administrative digression, as if in the middle of a harangue from a parent to a rebellious adolescent about the need to respect authority, do one's homework, and generally develop grown-up habits and responsibilities, there's a brief sidebar in which the parent reminds the teen about an upcoming doctor's appointment that he must be very careful not to miss. Is that what this is? A loosely related administrative digression somewhat disconnected from the major themes that Paul has been developing? Scott J. Haffelman thinks not. He writes here that the importance of the collection within the argument of 2 Corinthians, not to mention within Paul's theology, is often underestimated. Far from being a digression in Paul's thought, the practical point of 2 Corinthians as a whole is actually expressed in these chapters. Those Corinthians who have not accepted the grace of God in vain, as evidenced by their repentance, are to prepare for Paul's third visit by purifying the church, he puts in brackets there 6.14 through 7.1, and by completing the collection, in brackets there 8.1 through 9.15, closed quote. In essence, Haffman understands Paul as positioning the offering project as a way for the Corinthians to demonstrate the reality of their repentance and restoration. If they've really received the grace of God in the crucified Christ, then overflow in love toward other people. If they're really restored to their apostle, then again, they should overflow in commitment to the apostolic mission. Put your money where your mouth is. That's basically what Haffman is suggesting Paul is doing here, and I think he's right. Paul isn't saying that they can buy reconciliation with God, or with him for that matter, by contributing to the project. Rather, he is saying that if they are reconciled with God, and if they're reconciled with him, then, of course, they're going to want to. They should want to. It would be very natural and appropriate and fitting for them to want to contribute to this project. Because this is what Christians do. A person who has received grace and who is filled with the Spirit is going to respond with joyful, generous giving. So Paul says, here's an opportunity for you to do that. Our Jewish brothers and sisters are struggling right now to care for a massive influx of poor widows and religious refugees. They're carrying the burden all by themselves, and they're doing that for the least of these, my brethren, as Jesus called them. Jesus said that what we do to folks like that is basically received as having been done unto him. Now, he died for you, and he has filled all of his people with grace, gratitude, and joy. So I'm just assuming here that you're going to be eager to get on board with this project. So I've gone ahead and said some delegates ahead of me who are going to help you prepare to follow through on this admirable and appropriate impulse. <laughs> That's the thrust of this entire section. We pick up the argument now in verse 1 of chapter 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. 
For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The ESV has verse 1 here, beginning with the word now, which almost makes it sound as if there's a transition or a new topic being addressed here, which is obviously not the case. We're still talking about the Jerusalem offering. And that's why most modern translations, or some anyway, will begin with verse 1 having the word for right at the start. So the NET, the New English Translation, for example, says here, for it is not necessary for me to write you about this service to the saints, because I know your eagerness to help, closed quote. That is equally accurate and probably more helpful. The Greek particle here, men, can be translated as indeed or for or now. It's really a translator's decision. And it would seem to me that for is the preferable option in this circumstance. Paul is carrying on the conversation about the Jerusalem offering project, and he's saying, obviously, I don't need to tell you about this project since you were amongst the very first to embrace the concept. The situation, you will recall, is that the Corinthians had shown early enthusiasm for the program, and then Paul had used their enthusiasm to encourage the Macedonians to get on board. However, when the Corinthians and Paul had their falling out, the project, of course, stalled in Corinth, whereas the Macedonians, unaffected by that conflict, had followed through and, in fact, had gathered a contribution that far exceeded Paul's expectations. So now, with his relationship with the Corinthians on the mend, Paul uses the follow-through of the Macedonians to encourage the Corinthians to re-engage. Toward that end, Paul is going to send some brothers to organize the collection, such that when the Macedonian delegates arrive with Paul, there won't be any embarrassment for him or for them. He wants them to have the necessary time and logistical support to provide a truly free will offering. He doesn't want them scrambling around at the last minute out of guilt, out of envy or embarrassment. Now, as a further encouragement to re-engage with the project, Paul offers a brief reflection on religious giving or giving motivated by our faith in God. He says in verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul appears to be summarizing a principle of wisdom through his wording here, and it doesn't correspond precisely with any particular biblical proverb. In essence, what it looks like he's done is mashed together a bunch of proverbs. So Proverbs eleven twenty four to 25, for example, says, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And Proverbs 22.8-9 says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. 
Our English Old Testaments are translated from the original Hebrew, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament was actually the Bible of the early church. And the Greek translation of Proverbs 22, verse 8 from the Septuagint is even closer to what Paul says here. It says, He that sows wickedness shall reap troubles and shall fully receive the punishment of his deeds. God loves a cheerful and liberal man, but a man shall fully prove the folly of his works. So what you can see there is that Paul's thought has been influenced by a variety of these proverbs and have coalesced, as it were, into a working maxim. The point is this, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul is saying that in the mystery of providence, it really does seem that those who are afraid to give, and those who hold on very tightly to their money, always are worrying that they don't have enough, and in fact, end up being the ones who don't have enough. Whereas the one who gives generously and the one who sows liberally seems to reap bountifully. Paul says, you got to think like a farmer. The goal isn't to keep as much seed in your bag as possible. The goal is to get that seed out into the ground. If you do that, and if you trust God to do what he has to do for that seed to grow and become food, then you will have 30, 60, 100 fold more than the man sitting at home eating his seed out of the bag. That's the idea here. God has rigged the world to reward faithful generosity. So trust in that. Now, does that mean that if you give $100 to the mission project, then you're going to receive $200 in the mail the very next day? No, of course, it doesn't mean that. This isn't a scheme for increasing your financial resources. It is a program for participating in the coming of the kingdom of God. You are a human being, meaning you were created to take hold of blessings in the heavenly realm and then to distribute them down here in the earthly realm. So every time you do that, you demonstrate your rehabilitation to your original destiny and calling. And you position yourself for greater participation in that program in the future, right? You've been faithful with a little, so now you're positioned to be entrusted with much. But the much, of course, is much more than just money. So we have to be careful to avoid the crass applications of the prosperity gospel folks. But we should also be careful about overreacting to their crass applications and in so doing, undermining the assurances that Paul is giving here. Paul is saying that it is impossible to outgive God. If you give it away in faith, in joy, in love, then as you shovel it out the front door, don't be surprised if God is shoveling it back in through the back door. He wants you to get better at this. And so he is unlikely to allow you to run out of resources with which to participate. So you focus on sowing. He will make sure you've got seed in your bag. And the result is going to be a tremendous harvest that will ultimately bring glory to God because he's the giver. He's the source. You're just the distributor. You're the sower. He puts the seed in your bag in the first place. And then, of course, he makes it grow once it hits the ground. He is the one who, who supplies this entire process from start to finish. And so it is all of grace. Paul has more to say about giving in verse 7. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What Paul says here is in keeping with what he said in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, when the project was first being introduced. He said there, on the first day of every week, 
Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, it should probably be said that this story about the Jerusalem offering does not tell us everything we would like to know about the practice of religious giving within the early church. To state the obvious, the Jerusalem offering was a special project. And as such, it really tells us nothing about the week-by-week patterns and practices of giving within the church. Paul reminded the Corinthians, for example, of their responsibility to support gospel workers in 1 Corinthians 9. In verses 9 to 10 there, he said, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak, certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Closed quote. He's even more explicit when writing to young Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5.18, he says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Closed quote. So there must have been some sort of regular collection for the support of gospel workers. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. This is a one-time special project for the specific relief of poor, mostly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. The most obvious parallel then for us would be the Christmas offering or a special collection to support a particular mission project. Though there are, of course, general principles here that can be applied to all forms of religious giving. The principle in verse 7 is that Christian giving should be free will in the sense that it is not to be coerced. There should be no browbeating or arm twisting. Each individual or each household should consider their situation carefully and give an amount that is sacrificial, but that reflects their abilities and means. It should be something they can freely and joyfully release with a smile on their face and a song of praise in their heart. That's the idea. For God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. So when you're sitting down as a household to determine how much you can contribute, remember that God is able to make all grace abound to you. He wants you to abound in every good work, so he is committed to the process. You can count on his investment in the development of this grace in your life. So count on sufficient backfill. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't just look at your upcoming obligations and your present bank balance. Look also at the God who is watching over this entire process and who has at his disposal all the resources of heaven and earth. He wants you to step out in faith. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to get into the rhythm of shoveling it out as he shovels it in, not doing that only after a sufficient pile has accumulated. He wants it to be a constant process. Remember, this is the God who conceived of the Old Testament manna test, right? You you got one day's supply. And of course, a bunch of people tried to gather more than one day's supply, and you remember what happened. It all turned to rot and maggots in the jar. So, God has a track record of rewarding day-to-day risk-taking faith. He has a track record of showing up every day with the bread that you need for the day. He has proven himself on that. You can trust him. You can take the leap of faith and give generously. That's the idea here. In verse 9, Paul is quoting from Psalm 111, verse 9. 
Now, I'll bet that most modern readers, when they read that citation in 2 Corinthians 9.9, think that the he there is referring to God. God has distributed freely. God has given to the poor. God's righteousness endures forever. But that's actually not the case. Colin Cruz says helpfully here, in the psalm, the subject of the generous giving is the human person. And Paul introduces the quotation to reinforce the point that because of God's blessing, the Corinthians will be able to abound in every good work, i.e. to contribute generously to the collection. If this is the case, it is the righteousness of the Corinthian giver that will endure forever, close quote. Thus, taken together, verses 8 and 9 are saying that God will give you the grace, the, the resources, spiritually and financially, to enable you to participate in every good work so that you can bring your faith to fullness and maturity. Faith, for it to be faith, needs an expression. It needs an outlet. It can't just remain an inward feeling or conviction. It has to bloom forth into faithful action. All of the apostles taught this. James, for example, in James 2, 15 to 18 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works, closed quote. So according to James, faith that stays internal, right? That stays at the level of feelings and thoughts and convictions. Faith like that dies. It actually never becomes real faith. If it doesn't burst forth into action, then it's really just like the seed that never sprouts. It isn't really alive. Faith that grows up and acts out is real faith. Paul said the same thing in Galatians 5, 6. He said, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. That, that's what we're talking about here. God will give you the resources so that you can put your faith to work in deeds of love. And, and then your righteousness, like the man in Psalm 111, will endure forever, praise the Lord. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray also for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Here in this final paragraph, Paul describes the outcome he anticipates from this entire project. The Tyndale New Testament Commentary provides an excellent summary. It says, The needs of the Jewish Christians in Judea will be met, and they will offer thanksgiving to God. Recognize the Gentile Christians' obedience to the gospel and the surpassing grace of God at work in them, and so will long for them and pray for them. In short, the outcome will be the enhancement of the unity of the church. Close quote. So, needs are going to be met. Faith is going to be demonstrated. Praise is going to be offered. Bonds of fellowship are going to be strengthened. 
and the church is going to come together like never before. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, because it is going to be all of grace. It's God from start to finish. God put it into the hearts. He put it into Titus's heart. He put it into the hearts of the Corinthians back in the early days of the project. God got the ball rolling, and now he's keeping it rolling. He's inspiring a desire in the Macedonians that in turn is going to rebound to inspire and encourage the Corinthians. And we know that that actually happens because Paul, when he is finally in Corinth, so we're moving ahead in the storyline just a little bit, but when Paul is in Corinth, he writes to the Romans and he says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Close quote. That's Romans 15, 25 to 26. So it worked. The Corinthians do, in fact, get on board. They, they make a generous contribution. God's grace welled up in them and overflowed as joyful sharing with their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. And what a testimony that must have been to the watching Roman world. They, they were seeing before their very eyes new bonds of affection being forged across lines of historic enmity. A new community was emerging a third race, a new man, a new creation. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.